step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Hello and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig and this is episode 41. I am uh, indeed delighted to be here because this is a review of the first 40 shows. I like to do this every now and then. Uh, Really, it's the second time that I've done a one-person show. And I like to do it because, firstly, it's a lot of fun being on the air for an hour or an hour and a half, however long the show goes, and having the opportunity to express what's on my mind A lot of us like to speak, (laughs) we are loquacious, and a lot of us like to express our opinions and thoughts because we might have many, Uh, I often feel as though I do, and doing a show like this really gives me the chance to put it out there, and in this case, to put it out there about Hat Radio, which I'm obviously very passionate about. This show started last November, and we are approaching the first year of the show uh soon we will hit the 52 mark which would be 52 shows which equals a year and that is a success you know when you start up these things you you kind of approach it in two different ways one is man how am i going to do this i know nothing about podcasts and that is to some extent the truth very few people know what they're getting into until they do it this is an arduous trek not a simple one it's climbing up masada during the heat of the day but the flip side to it is wow i'm gonna do this forever imagine that i'm able to do a radio show out of my house that people can listen to i can say what's on my mind i can speak to people who are indeed mesmerizing, fascinating, compelling, as I have done over the last almost 12 months. So today, the goal is to almost create a synopsis of um, the achievements of Hat Radio and my achievements. I'll talk to you about some of the challenges, (laughs) and there are uh, challenges, there's no question about it. And what I will do is I'll kind of divide it up to show into five episodes at a time. And that's how we'll look at the last 11 months. So as an example, we'll take a look at the first five shows, and then I'll choose one of them and talk a bit more about that particular show, highlighting some of the things, the dialogue between myself and my guests and some of the most intriguing things that were said at that time. Uh, Again, you know, looking back, I've had the real honor of speaking with people like Kitty Cohen, who was 106 years old when we spoke. Um, Unfortunately, she passed away two weeks after the show, but I felt as though it was a real legacy that we created, somewhat of of a gift. And by the way, her daughter did a 10 minute piece when we were finished talking about her appreciation of her mother And I think she felt as though that was a gift. And certainly that's one thing that I would like Hat Radio to be all about. 
be inspirational, you know, make people feel good and positive, give a sense of community, but also have that, you know, box wrapped in a ribbon of an hour and a half of discussion and talk about who they are, what they've accomplished, what some of the challenges have been. Um, you know, later on, we'll talk about Robert Powell, who's an ADHD coach. He's a fine human being, a lovely man. He's actually helping me out right now, and I'm really appreciative of that. And he talks about the trials and tribulations of going to war with CRA and they attacking a jewelry business of which he had started and ultimately that business falling. What was he going to do then? How was he going to come out of that? What sort of man would he be? These are questions that he had to ask himself and he was able to answer them in a positive way which pushed him forward and ultimately changing courses of his entire life, not starting up another business, not attaching his success to the amount of money that was in his bank account, but getting out there and helping other people, maybe people who had the same struggles as he had. You know, what about my talk with uh, Rabbi Daniel Karopkin? Now, here's an interesting one because he is a very, very well-known rabbi here in Canada and in the United States. He's the rabbi of one of the biggest synagogues, Orthodox synagogues in the world. It's called the Bayat Synagogue. And he and I talked, and he spoke openly about who he is and what his value system is all about, the parents that he came from. His mother was on the Kinder Transport when she was five years old and wrote a novel about it. Uh, Kinder Transport was a train that really saved children um, by shipping to, shipping them or, or transporting them to rural uh, Britain and putting them with families both Jewish and non-Jewish for the course of the war. You can imagine the effect that would have had on his mom, ultimately her mothering, and the effect that it had on him. Now, here's the interesting juxtaposition is uh, on November 26th, I think it is, coming up, uh, Rabbi Daniel Karopkin will be interviewing me and he will be asking me where the, from where the Orthodox community failed me because I was born into a religious environment, but I gave that up at 20 years old. And I've never really spoken too much about it, but here I'll have that opportunity to do so. So these are just a few examples of what creating a podcast does for my listeners for my guests, and guess what, for me. It does quite a bit. I absolutely enjoy interviewing. It's something that I've been doing for many, many years. I've spoken about my time on commercial radio, including CFRB, Toxics 40, and you will know as well that uh, recently I interviewed Steve Couch, who was the program director at CFRB, uh, when Marty and I, my buddy, uh, were there and we did what was called the food show. Uh, that, that was quite an interview with Steve because when you're working for somebody as we were at CFRB, the Slates, uh, a very affluent family, a media family here in Canada and Steve Couch, who was our direct boss at the uh, studio itself, you know, you see them in a certain light and I don't have to talk to you about that. You know, a boss is a boss is a boss. And I told him that when he was walking down the hall to my apartment, I looked at him and go, oh man, here's my boss. <laughs> here's my radio boss. But you know something going through the interview, sitting across from me was Steve Couch, citizen, man, father, husband, 
guy who likes to nap in the morning and nap in the afternoon, while he may have been type A when he was running a station in Montreal and a station in Toronto and doing work nationally. He was a, he was a big shooter. Now he's retired. He's a different sort of guy and he sees life differently and he's a bit softer and he's a bit more gentle. That uh, was a real beautiful thing for me to see because I had the chance to watch how people evolve. You know, once they've given up some of those difficult pieces that they have to go to every single day uh, in the work environment and it shapes them. You know, you yourself know nine to five, five days a week or whatever your working environment is all about, that shapes you. And to some extent, you lose other pieces of yourself because you have to concentrate so much on the task in front of you. Well, Steve, is uh, he has time on his hands. <laughs> he says it takes him three hours to go shopping now because he stops and he talks to people. And he comes home with stories that he shares with his wife, which she has heard you know, so many of them or so many similar stories. It's like, Steve, enough is enough, you know. But this is who he is. He's a listener. He's a talker. He's a storyteller. So it's translated into his new life. What a gift for me. What a gift for me to hear his stories and to hear uh, the stories of Alexa Gilmore, who is the minister at the Windermere Church in the east side of Toronto. Uh, sorry, the west side of Toronto. I always confuse those men. I have the worst sense of direction. What about you? And uh, to hear from Alexa about the days in which she was giving sanctuary in her church to the Pasumas, Joseph and Timia and their little one, Lulu. And guess what? Episode 40, an interview with Joseph Pasuma. So there's some very, very sort of interesting things that have happened here. Alexa Gilmore, the minister at this uh, United Church, opens up her doors together with her congregants for this family who lived in that church for 18 months, not able to go out because of fear of being scooped up by Immigration Canada, not able to be free. Once again, think about that for a second. You are in one environment. You are under lock and key, basically, for a year and a half. And prior to that, they were in another church, total of three years in sanctuary. So they would not be back, deported back to Hungary, where they had had the shit kicked out of them by neo-Nazis, literally. Uh, so another, uh, some sort of partnership that happened on our show or was reflected through our show was with Dr. Saul Kendall. Dr. Saul Kendall is my dentist, or was. He just retired. Muzzle tough. Congratulations. Uh, we wish you lots of luck in your retirement. You know, maybe he can come over sometimes and fill a, fill a cavity at my place. I really trusted the guy, and I didn't never really knew what it was like not to have your dentist anymore. I found that out this week when I was having a root canal, but Saul is retired. And he did a great interview. Now, there were challenges to that interview because he's lost two boys, he and his wife. And that's, uh, as they say, in Yiddish Rahmanis. But he did the show. And uh, despite the fact that he was afraid or nervous, and a lot of guests are, why wouldn't they be? It's an hour and a half interview. That's a lot. And I, I try very hard to go as deeply as possible with, with my guests. So, you know, wouldn't you be, you know, a little bit scared of that? I certainly would. And I am for the interview coming up in a few weeks with uh, Robert Karopkin. But the partnership of which I speak is a few weeks later, 
I spoke with his son, Sean Kendall, and his partner, Shauna Ackerman. And they're beautiful people who are in a relationship and have been for three years. And they started up a camp, the Karma Camp, for uh, teens and young adults with autism. Holy frickin' hell. Imagine that, man. A teen and, uh, you know, young adult camp for autistic uh, people, people with autism. I, I always grapple with that. Like, what, what do you say? And I asked him about that on the show. <laughs> I just don't have a great memory. Um, and they told me about this. Sh- they told me about the camp. Uh, it was really quite, quite unbelievable. Shauna says she never worked so hard, but, um, but she was never so satisfied. Right. And every single day they would go, uh, to camp, which was in a beautiful, rural environment here in northern Toronto or north of Toronto and they would have programs uh, for these people young people uh, and learn from them and teach them and discover their potential and they did so and you'll hear a bit more about that later and one of the things that Sean took away from that experience of this first season for his camp was to start other programs for people with autism one of which was uh, a job fair. Imagine that, eh? A job fair. And Shauna said when, when Sean was speaking about the job fair, which will be, I think, in November, that companies should really consider taking on young people or any people, really, with autism because they will be there every single day. They will be diligent at what they do, very hyper-focused. This is a sense we get from people who have autism, hyper-focused. They will not complain. (laughs) And I don't know about you, man, but I'm a complainer, right? Give me a job and I will complain. (laughs) And they make a really strong case. Uh, There's a a great uh, series on TV. David Shore is the uh, producer of it, uh, The Good Doctor, uh, about a a doctor who uh, is on the spectrum of autism. And uh, we're learning so much more about, you know, people, young people or older people of autism. And thank God we are. These are beautiful times in which we live. So before we launch into the show more so, I just want to uh, talk about the times in which we live um, through a discussion about the Jewish people. And I, I am Jewish, very Jewish. I did not go to synagogue on the high holidays, however. Or, nor did I go on the holidays following, which was Sukkot, Simchat Torah, Shmini Atzeret. I was not compelled to this year for various different personal reasons. And um, yeah, it was a bit hard. You know, being Jewish and growing up in a traditional environment, you come to know the spirituality of the day and of the week and of the month and of the year. So that when Shabbat comes around, even if you don't keep the Sabbath, even if you decide, yes, I'm going to drive and I'm going to watch TV, in my mind anyways, there is still something about it that where time stands still and space is limited more so than during the week, during secular times. Um, So not having that this year, I was a little bit lost. But that being said, I tell you about my Jewishness because, you know, sometimes people say, is this a Jewish show? I said, no, it's not. But I bring to the show who I am. 
and I'm a writer, so I bring that to the show. Sometimes I'll write stuff and I'll read it on the air. Uh, I'm a talkative, communicative sort of fellow, so obviously I'm going to share that with you. I'm also very Jewish. In other words, I went to yeshiva for many, many years, which is a Jewish school, very uh, religious Jewish school, brought up, brought up in a rabbinical home. I talked about that a lot. I have to say, by the way, one of my friends, Vicky, who I interviewed, told me, you know, Avram, you repeat that quite a bit, that you are, you come from a rabbinical home. And I used to more so. And why did I? Well, it was foremost in my mind. <laughs> it's a big deal. Like, think about the character traits, uh, personality traits that you have and ask yourself where they came from, how long you've been cognizant of them, what they, again, where they stem from. And in my case, so much of who I am is because of my upbringing in an Orthodox environment by a rabbi and a Rebetzin, that, uh, she being the wife of a rabbi, a Rebetzin. Um, it, it's obviously had a huge impact on me and, and in some ways it's totally fucked me up. <laughs> so, but, uh, the flip side to it, it's, it's brought a lot of richness, a lot of meaning to my life. So I talk about it a lot. So I just want to share with you something about the Jewish people now because I'm concerned of so many stereotypes which are going around and the anti-Semitism which is happening uh, in droves. I spoke to Michael Soberman in one of the shows. Michael uh, used to work with March of the Living. It's a program that takes kids to uh, Poland and then Israel. And he's a, a consultant now teaching teachers about Jewish education. And he said not to be so concerned with anti-Semitism. Let's be more concerned with creating relationships with other nations and other peoples. And I agree with him, but I do think that there is concern uh, about anti-Semitism. So I want to break down some of those stereotypes. Now, there, there's this belief out there that Jews are penny pinchers. There's this belief out there that we are cheap. When I was growing up in Kitchener, I had non-Jews throw pennies at me. And uh, that did happen later on in Toronto, too. The idea of being here, cheap Jew, here's a penny for you, you know, go spend it on a black ball. Remember black balls? When we were a kid, they cost about a penny or one of those long strings of licorice, right? It's humiliating. It's embarrassing when people do that to you. I was, someone once spit in my face. Um, Dan, that's the worst. Anyway, I'll tell you something. I used to work for the United Jewish Appeal, and that is the central arm of the Jewish community for fundraising, and those funds are delegated by the Jewish Federation of Greater Toronto. I was exposed to fundraising every single day for seven years, and then subsequently in the organization I started called Vihavta, one of my main tasks was to raise money. So I was approaching Jewish people from all walks of the city and outside of the city for funds to ensure that the community would keep going. And later on, that Via Hafta would have a life. And I would sit at people's desks and I would ask them for money straight away. After giving a story about the UJA, about the community, about the work we did in Israel or about Via Hafta, some of the, the, the programs we did, like starting a school for the homeless, like having a van that takes out volunteers every single night into the streets of Toronto to give out food, to give out clothing, to give out glasses, to give out books. And they would sit and listen. And I wasn't the first one who was sitting in front of them that day more often than not. I had a fellow once, first name was Bernie, who said to me, Avram, you're the third person to sit in that chair this week asking me for money 
basically telling the same story. I said, yeah, Bernie, but... And then I went on to explain why my story was different. And his response was, yeah, that's what the other two told me too, which was a really important lesson. The point I'm trying to make is that I've been exposed to the affluent in our community. I've been exposed to people who are middle class and also poor. And I have to tell you something. We give a lot of charity. We help out a lot. At the essence of a Jew is the concept, is the idea of loving your brother as you love yourself. Is everyone generous in our community? No. They're really cheap people like any other community. And I've had those experiences too. You bang your head against the wall knowing that someone spent, you know, $2,000 on a ski outfit, but God forbid should help out someone who's in need in our community or outside of our community. But most of my experiences asking for money were positive. And the outcome of that, of those moments were I walked away with a check and they were very often generous checks. And once again, the organization that I represented ultimately via Hafta was just one of hundreds of other organizations who are raising money. The infrastructure that exists within our community here in Toronto, the one that exists in Montreal, one that exists in uh, Vancouver, in Halifax, going to the United States, every major metropolitan city and the smaller ones, going to Europe, going to South America. The Jewish community's infrastructure is unbelievable. It is beautiful. It's sophisticated. It is well thought out. It is well financed. Now there's troubles. There are always challenges to keeping them up, especially, you know, if, if the fuel that drives them is money, because you always have to raise that money every single year. But the fact that I'm trying to make is we have done beautiful things in the world within our community to ensure that the poor are taken care of, right? That kosher is available and well watched for people who are into kosher. That diaspora Jews have played a major role in helping the state of Israel and they're impoverished. And if you know much about Israel, poverty is a huge problem. But it doesn't stop there. Jew Jews have played a major role in assisting non-Jewish programs, in assisting non-Jewish issues and causes. Again, I myself started an organization, and that organization's mission statement was to encourage all Jews and all people to play a role in Tikkun Olam, repairing the world, and to actualize it. In other words, to go out there and make sure that the people of Guyana, South America, that their medical situation was better after we left than when we, before we came, that the people of rural Zimbabwe, that they were helped out too through Dr. Paul Thistle, who is a doctor from Scarborough, Ontario, Canada, made his life in Zimbabwe. He has a beautiful Zimbabwean wife and three boys. And he ran a hospital there called the Howard Hospital. He's now into another hospital. But we helped out. We were Jews at the forefront of, the, uh, uh, of that. We were in Haiti after the hurricane. And the list goes on and on and on. And I am not saying this to be arrogant. I'm not saying this to be cocky. I'm not saying this to uh, prop up the Jewish people in a chosen people sort of way. I really don't buy into that. What I'm telling you is that this is a reality. 
And if you do your Google searches, if you speak to your Jewish friend or you find somebody within the Jewish community who will talk to you about who we are as a people, you will discover the last thing our people is, is penny pincher. We are not penny pinchers. We're generous folk. And we've done an awful lot to prove that. And I'm deeply proud of it. I'm very proud of being part of this people. And I'm also proud of giving away my money when I have to. Uh, again, that that's not an easy thing. One of the things we hold on to most tightly, <laughs> it's our cash. It's our cash. And we all know that, right? So take that, digest it, think it through, learn more about it. And certainly you're, uh, you can email me or contact me at avram at hatradio.ca if you have any questions about the Jewish people or anything I can answer. One thing I read this morning, and this will end this after this, is that Israel sent over a team to Kenya uh, to play lacrosse. And I thought that's pretty cool. Israel's a hockey team. They have a lacrosse team. They have a baseball team, and they play uh, other countries. And <laughs> you know, this is not a desert land, certainly not only a desert land. It's It's vibrant. It's a pulse there, you know? Anyway, uh, they came to Kenya and they realized that their counterparts did not have cleats. And cleats are really important when you're playing a game like lacrosse. Believe it or not, was our national sport here in Canada. And what did the Israelis do? They bought them cleats. Now, these are stories I hear all the time. They're just really, really special. Uh, if Jews or Israeli Jews... Uh, can make other people's lives better than they will. And uh, that that's just something that I hold near and dear to my heart. And I, I wanted to share that with you. Um, I want to thank my buddy Howard Pasternak, who does post-production on Viafta, as well as Dave Nefesh, who wrote and uh, sang the song uh, at the beginning of each and every show since our inception. These are good guys, guys I've known for many years, extremely helpful, extremely loving, and I'm happy to have them part of my team. Um, I had an idea, by the way. What about a food parliament? <laughs> I don't know either, man. I just know that I like the idea. What would a food parliament be? I guess it would be set up like a regular parliament, but rather than talking about issues, we would serve food and everybody would break bread together. A food parliament. Okay, let's uh, let's dive into the show. Welcome to it. It's episode 41 of Hat Radio. Once again, my name is Avram Rosenzweig. And today we're going to do a review of uh, the last 11 months and talk about some of the shows. So my very first show, uh, the very first five was Lou Berkowitz. Is, uh, was number one. Karen Goldberg was the second show. Kitty Cohen, I spoke a little bit about her, the 106-year-old woman. Alexa Gilmore, the minister. Ellie Rubenstein, he is uh, March of the Living, uh, important guy, executive, as well as a spiritual leader, Congregation Habonim. By the way, Karen Goldberg is a beautiful person who is my mentor, uh, who stepped in as a CEO of Via Hafta uh, when I started stepping down. And she is a beautiful human being who's done a lot for many, many people. But the first show was Lou Berkowitz. Now, Lou is an amazing fellow um, because he, I, I don't know anybody who's as growth oriented as he is. Uh, honestly, I, I've never seen anybody push forward in life with the verve and the courage 
like like Lou, his wife passed away, Renee, and and, and that's why the the show is called Having and Losing a Soulmate. They were deeply in love, really truly soulmates, uh, and I knew them both for many years prior to her death, so I can testify to that. Um, and when Renee got sick and died, and that that was a really short period of time, uh, Lou never really stopped living. He never really stopped growing. Now, while his growth might have morphed, you know, he's a real estate guy selling houses, condominiums, and today he is a yoga uh, guru. So it's definitely taken a different course, as you can see. The guy just kept pushing forward and pushing forward. At one point in the interview, we talked about the courting stage. Uh, in the relationship that he had with Renee. And by the way, they were together for about 10 years before she passed away. And he said that, you know, he he lost a little bit of his balls. Like we all do, many men in a relationship. She, he got scared. No, he, he probably got scared because Renee was so terrific. <laughs> he found the real deal. And, you know, when it's right in front of you, man, when truth is staring you in the eye, one of the things you want to do is run. It's like the Jews at Mount Sinai when God came down and gave Moses the Torah. You know, it was overwhelming for them. <laughs> so they fell asleep, right? So the story goes. But Lou was tempted to wash his hands of the relationship and to move on. And thinking about it, he said to himself, self, Lou, don't do this, man. You have something here that is very, very special, something very, very beautiful. Why would you possibly screw it up? And he didn't. And he stayed in the game. And Renee read him the riot act. She said, don't you ever do that again, man. <laughs> Sometimes we meant to need to hear that stuff. And he stayed in the game. And they had 10 beautiful years together. Listen to the show. You'll hear about trips that they took to Europe, to Amsterdam, and they really dressed nicely, too. Very, very two good-looking people, right? And dressed to the nines. And when you saw Renee and Lou together, um, and I was, at, I was at their wedding. I was actually sort of the spiritual leader at their wedding. I spoke to them under the chuppah, which is the canopy. Oh, my gosh. These were very, very well, well-dressed, very excited people, the two of them. Um and in, this, in, in, in the interview, you'll hear a lot about sort of the context of their relationship, the relationship between two soulmates, how they adored each other, how every Friday night, you know, they would sit by the fireplace in their home um, in, in, in northern Toronto, and they would talk, and they would drink wine, and these conversations would go on for hours. Now, have you ever had a conversation with someone where there are no breaks and the only time silence comes into that discussion, comes into that schmooze, is when you want it to. You're sitting there kind of pondering what the two of you had just discussed. That was Renee and Lou. They had things to talk about. They had things to share. They wanted to do that. I guess that is the meaning of soulmates. Soulmates are people who are in sync with one another. Their souls are bonded. They're tied together. You know, when, 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 when something is needed to be understood, 
you know, your mind starts to work and you process it and you look up and you say, yeah, I'm kind of getting this. Now imagine if you have someone who gets it with you or gets it through you or gets it because of you. That was Lou and Renee. That was the soulmateness of the two of them. Some interesting little tidbits come out in each and every show. Uh, I love the stories. I love the nuances, sort of the minutia of relationships and of people and their day-to-day lives. I, I really thrive on the moment. Lou said that when Renee passed away, uh, this ladybug came into his life. <laughs> I think Renee liked ladybugs, but it stuck around for a while. And here's the kicker. Lou's daughter, Olivia, said, man, there's a ladybug sticking around too <laughs> in her life. I uh, said to Lou during the interview, you know what? I know a number of different stories of birds that would show up after someone passed away and stay for an extended period of time, I guess, leaving when the soul went higher in the heavens or however you want to define that. Uh, I used to work with someone in radio who told me a story about her. Her husband had passed away. And the very next day, uh, a redbird showed up on her uh, patio and um, just stayed there all day. And we kind of watch her through the back door of the house, a glass door, and just watched her and perched itself wherever. And eventually, after a month or so had gone by, the redbird flew away. And I thought that was... Um, quite a story. I myself told the story about being in Florida when my friend Rachel Mammon's mother passed away. And Rachel was one of my interviewees on this show. Teacher, out of the box teacher. You got to listen to that one, man. She's wild and crazy. And I did a memorial for her mother, Rebecca, on the beaches of Florida. And I drew a circle around myself and I meditated on Rebecca and who she was as a person. And my relationship with her, which was really beautiful, is very special. She was a Moroccan woman, great cook, lovely woman. Again, very, very well coiffed, very well taken care of. And eventually the wind caused the circle that I had drawn to dissipate, to become invisible. It was no longer surrounding me or protecting me. And as it did, uh, a bird came and sat down next to me. It was a seagull. And stayed there until the circle had gone. And, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, hello, Rebecca. (laughs) And uh, whether that was true or not, I think there's a spiritual component component to life that kicks in in those moments. And on some level, we truly believe that bird or that ladybug is the person who we've lost. They've come just to give us some solace, to tell us, hey, I'm okay. I'm okay. Don't worry about it. I'm coming back as this cute little ladybug, this cute little bird, and I'm okay. I'm not going to stick around for long, but I want you to know that life continues for you, and wherever I'm at, and I can't share that with you, it's all good. So listen to episode one with Lou Berkowitz. Um, Berkowitz, what a great name, Lou Berkowitz. And you will learn a lot about soulmates. You'll learn about a lot about a loving relationship. 
We uh, head into episode six to ten. Uh, the first interview of that group was with Roz Jalade, a cat rescuer. We'll talk about that in a moment. Next was my sister Javi Rosenzweig, who also lost her soulmate. Her husband David was murdered uh, in 2002. And we talked extensively about that. I don't know anybody, honestly, this is not being dramatic. I know that radio people and entertainers have, um, <laughs> will often speak in hyper, hyperbolic uh, terms. This, this, I'm, not, I'm not being dramatic when I say that my sister has uh, developed herself more so than probably anyone else I know. So really worthwhile interview listening to because you will find out about how to develop yourself as a human being, which again is part of Hat Radio. After that, Aaron Benchushan. Aaron is a uh, is a Chazan. He's a Cantor. He's a Moroccan as well, and he uh, learned really to sing prayers, liturgy, uh, through Ashkenazi schools and teachers. Ashkenazi being Eastern European, so. The Jewish world is broken down into different groups, one of which is Ashkenazi and Sephardi. Sephardi would be North African Jews. Ashkenazi would be Eastern European Jews. But this is quite fascinating because in the show itself, he talks about bringing together the various different rules of the Sephardic song, Sephardic singing, cantorial work within a Sephardic environment with that of Ashkenazi uh, liturgy and and uh, and song. So he also sings on the show. And I have that quite a bit uh, in Hat Radio. Uh, later on, you'll hear about Linda Krar, who's a singer-songwriter, and she herself sang three different songs. Uh, Joseph Pasuma, who, again, I spoke about him in episode 40. He played three different gypsy songs on the show. And according to him, it's okay to use the word gypsy when you're speaking about Roma music. So I did that. I just used the word gypsy. Joan Ruja. Joan Ruja is a beautiful human being. I call her a warrior. She and I were together as partners for about seven years. Um, this woman really, although she may have fears, she doesn't let them get in her way. And she will stand strong, strong, man, strong and brave to protect you when she loves you or when she likes you or just for the sake of justice. Um, I, I truly love talking to Joan because, I mean, obviously I know her so well, having been with her uh, for seven years, but even more than that, you know, how often do you look at someone and say, in another life, I'm pretty sure that you were um, a soldier, man some sort of soldier going out there and fighting the iniquities of life, protecting the weak person. Uh, and that's one thing I get from Joan uh, personally. Like I myself can often be scared if challenged, certainly physically by other people. But when I'm with Joan, man, I feel protected. And uh, you'll hear a lot about a lot of this in the interview. You also hear about alternative forms of justice, which I think need to be used in our society jails are stupid and she'll tell you that uh they're locked up people are locked up like 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 animals in cages and i'm not sure what the outcome is for those individuals rehabilitation maybe uh to some extent but certainly not what was meant to be so she'll tell you about that as well and and also about the work she did with inmates on the phone 
uh, basically therapy for many, many years. Fascinating person. Bernie Farber, very well known in the Toronto, Ontario, and even Canadian uh, Jewish landscape and outside of it. He's a human rights activist. Um, his father told him, you know what? Open your mouth. Open a mouth. And that's the name of episode 10. He said, don't be quiet. When you see bad shit happening, get out there and fight it. And uh, Bernie tells a lot of stories about what he was involved with with neo-Nazis. His life was threatened uh, a number of times. And uh, he stood strongly and ultimately worked with the powers that be to close down some of these white supremacist groups. Bernie Farber, episode 10, Open a Mouth. So I want to talk a little bit about Roz Jalade. Roz um, is, is, is a cat rescuer, a cat whisperer. Um, the show uh, itself is called Rescue Me, Rescue Me, I Rescued Myself. And the reason I called it that, and by the way, I, I grapple a little bit with naming the shows. I'm never quite sure how to go about it. I Initially, I felt as though they should be these uh, titles that are uh, that seem very wise, you know? And um, later on, I thought maybe a little less wisdom and a little bit more description because there are environments where these episodes need to stand on their own. So... If for whatever reason, episode 33 ends up on someone's computer and they look at it and the title is cryptic or it's um, just not clear on what the show is about, I'm not sure that people will open it and listen to it. So I'm starting to describe the shows more so as an example. The very last show I did with Joseph Pesuma, episode 40, it's... Um, a Hungarian Romo once in sanctuary in a Toronto church, today an ordinary free Canadian. So you can see there's quite a description there. So we called Rescue Me, Rescue Me. Um, I rescued myself. Uh, we called th th that episode with Roz that title because when she left England as a kid, she, she had a really hard time. And you've probably heard stories of people, you know, young people who go through great separation anxiety leaving the country of their birth or the city of their birth. Well, Ross did. And I've often wondered why. Why with her and why with others? What is it about leaving the country of birth or your city of birth, which is so potentially traumatizing? And I guess at first blush, you look at it, listen, you know, that's where you park your soul. That's where you park your mind. And if you're from Montreal or if you're from New York, if you're from Paris, you grow up there, you know the streets, you know the people, you know the culture. You know, you know, you know the, 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 the community cats, right? You know the guy who comes by and sweeps the, the street or the one who, you know, when we were younger, we used to deliver the milk. Those were interesting days. And by the way, watch a movie called Ethel and Ernest on Netflix. It's animated and it's about two people. Um and their love story. It's brilliant, and he delivered milk. <laughs> so not to get too ADHD on you. So she had anxiety leaving her home, Roz did. She came here, and she kind of felt as though she needed to be rescued. Um, she started out uh, at secretarial school, and she finished it. I don't think she showed up for the first few weeks, but it wasn't really something that she was terribly passionate about. She's a cute little thing, and she has that sort of actress side to her, you know. 
And upon graduating secretarial school, she just realized this is not really what I want to do. And for many years, she struggled to determine what it was that she wanted to do. And over time, she began to realize that she wanted to work with cats. I asked her if she was a cat at her essence, and you can listen for her response to that. But really, one day she was uh, driving here in Toronto by a restaurant called Steve's, and she spotted a cat with kittens, and instinctively she sprung up, she fed them, and she gave them shelter, and she adopted them out. And that was sort of the genesis of her career with cats. I really relate to that. I was on my balcony yesterday, and on the floor of my balcony, I have this piece which I bought probably about 25 years ago. It's plastic fruits, and they're set on a background and framed. And most people look at them and they go, what the hell is this, man? Uh, and they don't care for it. But I saw it and I fell in love with it. And I think I paid like 25 or 30 bucks for it. And it was this exact piece right here. Again, three-dimensional uh, plastic fruits that launched my uh, career as an artist. I don't know if it's much of a career, but I've been painting ever since. I've sold about one one piece. <laughs> That's another story. And um, so I understand how a moment in life can seem as though or actually does make this enormous difference, uh, almost like an epiphany. So she stopped. She took care of their cat, her cats. And the rest is history. Listen to the show and you'll hear about organization that she started um, to work with other people on rescuing feral cats. Um she was very, very much involved in the health of those cats, working with local veterinarians. And I, I complained about veterinarians. You'll hear about that. They charge a lot, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, I also was really deeply intrigued by what people do with their passions. When someone is so engrossed in something, okay, they there's no hold, hold barred, none. And think about that in your own life. Something that you hit your stride with. And in your head, you're thinking to yourself, nothing is going to slow me down. So here you have Roz. She finds her zone. She figures out, this is what I want to do with my life, work with cats and other animals, by the way. She also works with dogs. And one night at 2 a.m., she finds herself running through someone's backyard to get to this group of feral cats and to help them. <laughs> I actually went out with her on that night to see what she does and how she does it, and it was freaking nuts. But that that's what passion is, and that's one of the things that I try to get out of these shows. I try to dig deeply into people's hearts and minds and to determine what is what is that fuel that makes them run what what is that thing that that makes them go through someone's backyard at 2 a.m in the morning to help a feral cat where other people are saying you're nuts man what are you doing be in bed at that time you know who cares about cats well she does and that's ross uh and it's episode six and very very well worth listening to Episode 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. First was Linda Krar. 
I mentioned to you before that she's a singer-songwriter, someone I've known for many years. She now lives in New Jersey, but originally from Toronto. Her parents uh, were Holocaust survivors, and they hated each other, and she'll tell you that. Uh, Four or five years old, she stood in the middle, and she said, Stop screaming, man. Stop it. Um, And you can imagine the effect that that had on her. She's a tough girl, um, but she's a beautiful person, and... Be married three times, and I think she is about to get married fourth time, and she adores every minute of marriage. She really likes the institution. She says it works really well for her. She said there are some things that haven't worked well, but by and large, she wants to do it again. Clive Caldwell, guess what? Clive Caldwell is a man who was rated number two in the world in squash in his day and number one in in doubles he played squash in a tournament with his 95 or so year old father a few days before he passed clive's type a type a type a plus 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 you know those guys that's clive he owns uh five of the major sports clubs here in downtown toronto including the adelaide club and we talked extensively about his life how he saw himself as number one in the world or number two it's funny, he said, I never really thought about it. <laughs> and I accept that. I completely accept that. You know, n- not everybody looks at these things in the way that I do. They kind of take it in stride. I mentioned this, I think, to my son. And he said, Daddy, you know, when you're competing and you're involved with people at your level for so long, that's the way you see the world. You know, you don't you don't see it. Uh, through the guise of individuals who play squash at a basic level. No, you see it really, really high. So the idea that you're the best doesn't really occur to you because you're surrounded by the best. And I thought that was an interesting point. Clive Caldwell, man, listen to that interview. He talks about a huge, huge hike that he went on. I won't tell you more about that, but um, man... The experiences he had, it was in Spain, and it went on for days and days and days and days, and he did it, and he did it with, really on his own, Um, and they say that for people who take this trek, that they will find an immediate place in heaven, (laughs) but uh, I'm not sure he did it for that reason, Clive Caldwell. Uh, Gabrielle Klein, she's a doctor, a physician, she works in uh, Israel, uh, over the Green Line in the West Bank, and she came here for a visit. She works with Haredi community. Uh, Haredi community are the ultra-right-wing Orthodox Jews who you would see uh, here in Toronto on the Sabbath walking down Bathurst Street with those long side curls dressed in black, and she's a physician. And she spoke a lot about stories. She told a lot of stories about working with the Haredi community. Um and so, some of some of the challenges, but some of the things that she's been able to change through that community. Um, she is a uh, intelligent woman, very intelligent and very adept at what she does, and has a real acute understanding of the Haredi community, which most people do not, because I think it's safe to say that unless you're involved intimately in a community, you you can't really understand their their essence, their personality on a very deep level. She does, and she talks about it, and it's very, very insightful. Uh, Vicky Weiss, an old friend of mine, Vicky's a foodie, 
<laughs> this is a lot about food, man. It's a lot about food. So if you like food, listen to this show because she adores it and she lives for it. She's from Ottawa, Ontario, where her father owned a sports star. And I thought, that's freaking A. I told her, I said, you know, when your father's a rabbi, he brings home books. When, you're, when your father owns a sports store, you probably have all the up-to-date Pumas and Adidas and all the running shoes and the hoodies and so on. She said, yeah, that was it, man. That was it. And uh, all the guys she knew just were so envious, you know, that her dad owned that place and ran it. So a lot of interesting, insightful little stories that she tells about those days, but more so about food. <laughs> and she evolved into veganism over the last year or so, uh, being at her house for dinner. And um, not only is the food outstanding, it really is. She's done a great job of learning how to cook vegan food, but the layout, she's very much into napkins, into serviettes. And think about that. So uh, after having that discussion with her, my mind opened up to the idea of, yeah, imagine how many different serviettes there are out there that I could place on my table if I were to have people over. And I went to the dollar store and I saw really beautiful, colorful and creative uh, serviettes. I call them napkins since I'm a kid. Um, and I bought a number and I put them out on the table and people do comment on them. They really do. Hey, nice serviettes. Yeah. So Marty and Avram, the radio years was episode 15. And uh, yeah, this was a real personal show. Uh, I did radio for 10 years with my dear friend, Marty Gallon, And we were attached at the hip. It was an incredible time uh, because really we were like a husband and wife or like two brothers constantly in touch with one another, constantly developing the show. We did a weekly food show, restaurant and food show on CFRB on Talk 640. I spoke about that. Later on, we were on CHFI and we did TV shows. One of the shows was called The Movable Feast and we had characters on that show, Fanny and Gertie. Um, Marty was Fanny dressed up like this buxom, bulbous, older woman <laughs> and I was Fanny maybe a little bit skinnier but very very quirky with a high voice and I believe I had a goatee at the time so there was Fanny with her beard and in this show we talk about that we talk about the many 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 experiences we had on radio and TV uh, and the times that we shared we talked about the chefs whom we were involved with, Michael Statlander, um, an amazing chef once considered to be the best in Canada, who eventually sold his restaurant, bought a farm, and began sort of customizing dinners for people. He would slaughter his own food and make these intricate uh, three or four course meals that probably cost about four or $500 each. We had... Uh, Massimo Capra, uh, we talked about him. He was actually one of the people we interviewed later on. Massimo also considered to be one of the most outstanding uh, chefs across Canada, a beautiful guy and um, known for his beet risotto. <laughs> Marty tells a story about being at Chentra one night. It's not open anymore, but it was one of Toronto's high-ender restaurants and we used to bring in, I don't know, five, ten guests with us, uh, mostly Marty's friends. 
and the restaurant seemed to be mostly okay with it. Although I think Steve Couch had a discussion with us at some point about doing that. But Marty never really backed down. <laughs> he wanted to have his harem around him, his group, his posse, and he did. So we go into Centro one night. Marty tells a story. And we're eating, and the food is just gourmet delectable. And at some point, we asked for some Louis the Thirteenth. I think it was maybe offered to us. Louis the Thirteenth is a cognac, and... I'm not a drinker, nor is Marty, but it seems somewhat worthwhile. Uh, we looked at the menu. The bottle was like 500 bucks. So, okay. A shot would be how much? I don't know, 20, 30 bucks. But they offered it to us, so we went for it. Anyways, afterwards, a very brash, very bold, very confident uh, chef, or not chef, I think uh, uh, maitre d' or, or, or uh, waiter came up to us and said, you know, this meal's on the house. Like, we never used to pay for our meals. Why would you then order a shot of Louis the Thirteenth, uh, which which is about $300 per shot or $400? And we, we kind of looked at each other and we looked at him. We, You're kidding me. We thought that was the cost of the bottle. <laughs> he goes, no, that's a shot. A shot of Louis the Thirteenth. The bottle costs, like, I don't know, $2,000. And we were aghast, and of course, we felt terrible about it, but mostly we were just afraid that we are going to have to put out that much money. Well, they covered it, and uh, you'll hear that story. You'll hear lots of talks about the Tulip, about Ruth Chris Steakhouse, um, and the various different restaurants uh, that we used to visit and go to, uh, and the crazy antics that we used to... uh, you know, create really. We had shows on TV of uh, a, a Jewish dinner, a Friday night dinner. On radio, I think we did a live bris, a circumcision. It wasn't really live. I had been at a circumcision earlier that morning and I taped it. We did all kinds of crazy stuff. We had uh, a wedding and Marty brought in caterers and chairs and this was all a talk 640. Eventually they let us go, by the way, and they did because I think our last show we had about 25 or 30 guys from a homeless choir in the studio. <laughs> and there was a lot of raucous there. And we were not the only show on the air. And some more highfalutin radio people were, were not so appreciative of our approach <laughs> and what we did and how we did it. So I think this is kind of the last straw. And, uh, and they let us go from Talk 640. But eventually we made our way to CFRB. Uh, listen to the Steve Couch interview. You'll hear more about that. Now, we head into episode 16 to 20, Pat Rush, Steve Pakin, Sadie Dome, Rabbi Daniel Koropkin, and Dr. Sandy Buckman. Pat Rush, man, I don't think I've had anybody as high profile as Pat Rush. Pat was a lead guitarist for Jeff Healy for about seven years, and he was also the lead guitarist for people like Johnny Winter. One of the things Pat pointed out to me in the show was, it's not Johnny Winter's and he, and he was very uh, uh, effervescent, not effervescent, but he was very specific about that. Like he, he really made a point of it. He said a lot of people call him Johnny Winters, and that's not correct. And he's right. He's right. People call me Avram Rosenwick, uh, Aram, you know, and I don't appreciate that. So thank you, Pat Rush. But that, man, that, that's one of those interviews where you feel like you're part of the world, but not just the world outside your window or the world you know, across the highway that takes you to another city, but the whole world. I mean, Pat Rush played guitar 
with every conceivable star that you can imagine with Buddy Guy, B.B. Uh, King, and he tells stories about his experiences with them, hanging out with them, living with them. The stories about Johnny Winter are really something. He actually lived in his home with them for a while. Johnny, although this didn't really come up with Pat, but jo- Johnny was purportedly walked around the house n- naked or nude. And uh, I think some interviewer came by and interviewed him in the nude. He was a, he was a pretty compelling fellow. But uh, Pat Rush, man, he lives here in Toronto now. He's a guitar uh, he repairs guitars down at one of uh, the major guitar stores here. And he is all very willing to tell his stories and to share them. I really enjoyed my time with him. I really, really did. And and again, I felt like I love rock and roll and I love blues and I adore great guitarists. My friend David Nefesh, once again, who does the song for this show, introduced me to music uh, when I was very young we went to Israel together, he and I, and, and you know, we would listen to The Last Waltz, which was the final concert by the band at his brother Jackie's house. Um, and I learned a lot about music, and one of the things that David turned me on to was guitar. Uh, and we used to go and buy guitars here in Toronto and exchange them and buy gifts for one another. And we had a whole slew of gorgeous, beautiful guitars, some of which I still have today. So I have a certain consciousness, a certain awareness about guitars. Uh, not that I really know how to play them, but I do have an understanding of them. And uh, having P- Pat on the show, and again, his central motif is guitar, guitarism. That's what we'll call it. We'll call it guitarism. Was a blast and an honor. So have a listen to that show. Steve Pakin, TVO. You know, some of the biggest, the best compliment I ever got about Hat Radio was from Steve Pakin. He said, Avram, I've never gone through an interview like that before. Um, Robert Karopkin, we talked a little bit about him. He's one of the uh, uh, biggest rabbis, if you will, in the Orthodox world and uh, philosophical, extremely bright, very uh, adept when it comes to sharing, which is part of his job. And he speaks a lot about helping others in the interview itself. Dr. Sandy Buckman. Now, Sandy Buckman, again, one of these type A, type A, type A++ fellows. He dropped out of school in grade 11. And you're thinking, oh, shit, man. He went to work at a gas station? No. He started his own school. (laughs) And he did it with a couple of buddies. And the principal was his buddy's father, who I think was a mechanic. Because they needed someone to sign the certificates by law. And essentially, they developed a program of education which was experiential, again, ahead of its time. Uh, You got to listen to this, man. It really is fascinating what he did. But the kicker with Sandy is that he is now involved in assisted deaths. And the show took a little bit of a different... uh, road there was a different feeling in the room when i was speaking to him about it you're talking about literally life and death and you're talking about making decisions in your life to be part of something which many many people feel is not correct or they grapple with it and of course there's a huge group of people who are in a in complete agreement with it it is legal in canada obviously 
I asked him at some point, so how many assisted deaths have you been involved? Around 20, he said more than that. So here I was sitting with a physician, a doctor, you know, who took the Hippocratic Oath, who made a decision, one can only imagine how difficult, to help people end their days. And yeah, it was a little scary. It was like being in the Holy of Holies, if you will, because I, you know, am uh, very conscious of what death means. I've been with a few people who died. My my mother, I was with my father after he died. My Aunt Sylvia. Um, it's daunting. It's daunting. And then to play a role in ending one's life, one can only imagine that what that means. So that's, that's Dr. Sandy Buckman. Uh, listen to the show. So, so, so the point, the one that I really wanted to highlight was Sadie Dome. And Sadie Dome was my son's bar mitzvah teacher, right? And she, the name of the show was my son's bar mitzvah teacher. <laughs> Appropriately so. Sadie's a lovely person. She, you look at her and she looks like a Renoir canvas. Very, very well put together. Uh, lovely, uh, creative in how she dresses herself. And what I found out later is extremely creative in the kitchen. Uh, after one of our classes, we went up to her kitchen and she introduced Noah and I to all of her many, many spices, which she has in alphabetical order in her uh, cabinet. I did that too, by the way. I came home and did the same thing. And I'm very disheveled, so they didn't stay ABC for long. But just yesterday, I actually changed that back and it works really, really well, sort of. Or as, at least you think you're organized and in control of life. But Sadie is... Uh, a really special person. She's very soft-spoken. She's very gentle. And it seems to me that she just loves her craft. Um, she said she never gets angry at her kids. Sometimes she would get frustrated with the students, be they bar or uh, bat mitzvah, but she had an agreement with them. And the agreement was we're going to work together to create something really special and to make your bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah a beautiful day. If they hadn't known the Aleph Beit, the ABCs of Judaism, the Hebrew ABC, then that's where she would start. If they knew that, then they would start learning the trop. Now, trop is interesting because the Torah is read every single Sabbath on, on Jewish holidays. Now, it's not just read aloud to the congregants by what's called a balkare, one who reads, but it has notes, right? And it goes something like this. And the notes crescendo, they go up, they go down, they're short, they're long. And she talked about teaching the kids the trop. At some point in our interview, I actually drew upon um, some interesting piece that uh, also a bar mitzvah teacher had written about how the different trop, how the different notes were reflected in one's personality. And um, the tipra, it's one of the notes. Uh, it, it kind of represents a person who is a closer, they, never, they don't make a fuss, but they work hard to get things done. They're the ones who turn on the dishwasher after the kitchen is cleaned. And I read this to Sadie, and she goes, yeah, I can kind of see that. 
Um, she, Sadie talked about her role as a Rebbitzin. Her first husband was a rabbi. And they started up a synagogue uh, north of Steeles in the 80s. And it was the wilderness of Toronto at that time, or less than a wilderness, but not built up yet. Um, they started a synagogue called B'nai Shalom. And you know what? She was really proud of her work. You have to be really unique to be a Rebbitzin. I know that because my mother was. And I often say that the heroes in a rabbinical home is not necessarily the rabbi, although they work really, really hard. But it's the Rebbitzin. Um, here's a beautiful thing. Sadie will pretty much take on anyone as a student. And uh, she is up to the task. So one of her students uh, had autism. And nowadays, you will see Barabat Mitzvahs more so where the young boy, the young girl is autistic and nevertheless stands up in front of the, the crowd and does their thing. However, that plays out. They're probably not reading the entire Torah or the entire Parsha, the entire portion, but they're doing something which is near and dear to them. She talked about a student whom she had who, she, that, that, who, who loved to sing and loved to dance. So they worked on four songs together, and they also worked on a dance. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, here's Sadie in her basement. That's where she used to teach my son, and I, I was down there a few times. And it's just sort of your your traditional classic basement, um, and 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 she's dancing with this young boy who's autistic in preparation for his bar mitzvah. How beautiful is that? But that's Sadie Dome, and and that's why I decided to highlight the interview with her because you know she stands out in a crowd that way. She really is very very beautiful inside and out. She did a terrific job with my son, and I'm really grateful. And I just love doing the interview. And I, I thought that was a real, I thought it would be a real kicker too. You know, you would, people would read a bar mitzvah teacher. It's kind of quirky in its own way. It's light, it's funny. But if you've had a bar mitzvah, you'll always remember your bar mitzvah teacher or a bar mitzvah. I know mine was Mr. Kellerman. And yeah, he was an older gentleman. Two weeks before my bar mitzvah, my father asked me how I was doing. And um, I really had known very little at that point <laughs> but i'm not sure it was mr kellerman's fault i think it was more my fault but i remember mr kellerman very well and i remember sitting with him and learning um and you you just remember your teacher your bar and bat mitzvah teacher and that's why sadie dome and other bar and bat mitzvah teachers are so important and that's why i really wanted to highlight uh that interview 21 to 25 is dave rayome nate leipziger massimo capra Avram Rosenzweig, just me. I was just talking. And Greg Rogers. Dave Rayom is, I think he's Canada's artist. I do. Rayom, R-H-E-A-U-M-E. -E. Take a look at his art. It's uh, moments in life. It's Rockwellian stuff. And the moment I saw his art, I was completely blown away by it in part because I'm an artist and you know when you work at something, you're constantly trying to achieve different things within it. I could never ever do what Dave Rayom does as an artist. So I wanted to bring him on and talk and I have to tell you something. There are interviews that are real serious. 
um, the the one with my with my buddy Joseph Pasuma was in sanctuary in a church. Well, that was pretty serious, and there was just no way around that. We were talking about difficult things. Um, my buddy Saul Kendall also has lost two boys. These are not light subjects. But with Dave Rayom, he's a partier, man. He's a funny guy. We actually used to work with him on radio. He was uh, one of our producers, uh, post-production guy, actually. Um, but I so enjoy, like, he could tell a good joke and he can take a good joke. And we were sort of going back and forth with one another. Beautiful guy. And I so enjoy his art. Uh, check out the interview. Uh, Nate Leipsker, we'll get to Nate in a second. Massimo Capra, we mentioned him in the discussion about Marty and I. Uh, Marty and Avram, the food guys. Massimo's Canada, one of Canada's finest chefs, and he's uh, Italian, and he's over the top. <laughs> you know, he has one of those winged mustaches, right? Uh, and when you see him, you know, you see a real sort of jovial fellow who has ensconced himself in the creation of some very, very special foods. He talks a lot about his early years and some of his mentors, and he's a very grateful and appreciative fellow. Um, he goes back as far as what happened in Italy when he was a boy, trying to figure out where he wanted to go with life, and it was really important as early as 14 years old. And then finding a niche or a possibility of doing some cooking um, in the army, I think it was, and he did, and he became very, very passionate about that. Uh, Massimo is a colorful human being. Uh, he's gone through his share of struggles too he lost a boy and he talks about that his wife came with him to the show and she was on the air as well uh so listen to that um greg rogers here's a guy who has a walrus penis collection that's right a walrus penis collection can't say more about that he's married to a woman from nunavut i'll have none of it and uh he was the ceo at the native men's residence when Via Hafta first started, we partnered up with them and we went out into the streets of Toronto on their van, learning about homelessness, learning about assisting on the streets and ultimately starting our own van program. But Greg was the guy. He was my partner. He was the one who headed up a very important uh, shelter in Toronto, an environment for native youth and older people. And he taught me the ropes. Um, he's a funny guy too, man. He's actually hilarious. Lord, thunder, and Jesus, would you then? Um, he, listen to the story about <laughs> his walrus penis collection. You'll never hear another story like it. <laughs> that I can assure you. Uh, Nate Leipziger is a Holocaust survivor. He's in his 90s, and he talked about his early years as a Jew in Europe and ultimately in a concentration camp with his father. Both of them survived, but as you can imagine, they were difficult, difficult times. And later on in life, he decided that he was going to share his story. He was going to talk about what he had gone through. He was going to let people into issues in his mind having to do with hatred and intolerance and he became an activist and the fascinating thing about our time together about this interview is that what came out he said you know what i love I, I i i still believe in humankind and he's a trusting fellow 
He says, you don't put yourself out there too much, but don't be too guarded either. He says, while he trusts, he doesn't do so absolutely, and he believes that people are mostly good. He said, you have to be careful not to expose yourself too much. Man is basically good, once again, but there are instances and issues that can make us bad. He believes in God, mostly, and he studies various different religions uh, to determine why people believe in God, Zoroastrian uh, religion, and so on. And then the last religion he studied was Judaism. Kind of smile when he said that. Jews are often like that, by the way. They leave Judaism until the end. Why is that? It's pretty intense. <laughs> There's a lot of laws. There's a lot to learn, right? And, and very often you go away from home before you come back and you realize the treasure is in my backyard. Um, he says, you know, tolerance is never sufficient. There has to be mutual acceptance. So if you're coming into my community or into my backyard, you need to accept the fact that this is who I am. This is my culture. This is how I dress. Welcome. And by the same token, I have to accept that in you. Tolerance itself is not good enough. Being tolerant of someone who's intolerant is just stupid. And Nate speaks about that. He also talks about, and here are some of the nuances of the show, which I really love, the minutia of people's lives. He remembers things in images. Doesn't remember them in words. He remembers them in images. So when he arrived at the concentration camp, he was uh, separated according to two different lines. One was for death, one was for labor. He was put in the death line. And a Nazi heard the pleas of Nate's father to shift him over to the other line. And for some reason, he did so. And when I asked him, why do you think the Nazi did that? He said, because he was human after all. He goes, that's really important to note that Nazis were human doing terrible things. And the lesson in that is we don't really know who's going to turn a gun on us, but it is of utmost importance that we understand clearly that humankind is responsible for both the good and the bad. It emanates from within us. So maybe that was a moment of kindness that this Nazi discovered inside of him. It's a difficult thing to say. It's a difficult thing to hear. But that was Nate, Nate uh, Leipziger's take on it. Have a listen to the interview. Very poignant, very educational, and very important uh, in terms of our understanding of goodness versus evil in the world, where our world has come from, and where uh, it might be going. And we continue with episode 26, Aaron Lightstone, episode 27, Benji Scheinwald, episode 28, Vac and Danny, episode 29, Rachel Mammon, episode 30, Erwin Elman. Aaron Lightstone is a, a music therapist. Suffice it to say, he's done miraculous things in life in terms of playing music for people who are dying. And he tells us about a time where he went into a person's room who was suffering from dementia. He was a semi-professional jazz player in his earlier days. 
brought in a piano and the man started to play and in a, an awakening sort of way came out of his autism for a short period of time and his pa- family as you can imagine were just so happy for those few moments uh aaron lightstone uh a really special guy uh benji scheinwald a worldly winnipegger destined to be a forklift driver i i really like benji a lot He's from Winnipeg, and, and he's got that really small town warmth to him. But by the same token, he's also CEO of a major nonprofit here in Toronto. And you can see sort of the the mixture of both of those, the sophistication and the uh, small townishness. You know, I know that because I'm from Kitchener. And there is something about us growing up in a limited space, you know, with less than millions of people, uh, which brings out a very sort of organic side to us, something which is very down to earth. I like Benji a lot, and uh, I really enjoy a lot of his discussion about his earlier years. He also had a grandmother who just passed away right, uh, really recently, I think was up around 106 years old. Very appreciative of that as well. Um, Vac and Danny, we'll get to that in a second. Rachel Mammon is a superstar kindergarten teacher yeah i know the term doesn't you don't hear that very often but she really is and she's a very old friend of mine someone whom i love a lot and she really conducts her life and her kindergarten's classroom uh in a particular way (laughs) highly practical uh very empathetic understands human behavior on a level that most of us don't and she tells us stories about dancing with her students and the kid. And there's always this kid. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's you who stands outside of the circle, is either too afraid to dance or not into it for whatever reason. And she'll stop the group and everybody will sit around together, supportive of that person and try to determine why it is that they don't want to dance. And at some point, sort of taking that child by the hand in a very safe way and bringing them into the group saying, listen, you don't even have to move. Just be part of the circle. You'll hear a lot of that in the interview with Rachel. It's really quite beautiful. Erwin Elman is episode 30. He was the Ontario uh, provincial advocate. He was responsible really for the kids in Ontario, mostly kids in group homes as well as on native reserves. Man, you want to hear a story about this, uh, about a fellow uh yeah there's like one of one Irwin in Canada I know he wouldn't like to say hear that because he's very very modest but he's a student in some ways of Janusz Korczak Janusz Korczak was uh, a PhD in education and he ran an orphanage in Poland and Warsaw uh, prior to the war and he was a very democratic environment, very mature, very sophisticated. There was a mayor of the orphanage. There was a parliament. They would uh, judge other kids as we do here in our courts. These were young children we're speaking of. And um, Janusz Korczak was eventually led to his death with the orphans, despite the fact that the Nazis were prepared to let him go. Erwin Elman, man alive. Very insightful, very worthwhile. The uh, the show that I want to talk about in, in a little bit more depth is the one with uh, Vac and Danny. Vac is an old buddy of mine, and he fell on hard times uh, a number of years ago. 
and lives in assisted housing uh, geared towards income. One of his buddies in that place, it, it's more than a shelter, uh, but it's certainly not a townhouse. And one of his buddies there is Danny. Uh, I went down there, and, I, and I've never done this. It's basically doing a remote. I went down to where they live, and I had uh, did an interview with Vac and Danny about who they are, about how they were raised and how they grew up, about how they ended up in such poverty. Uh, Danny's very sick. He has cancer of the lungs. He's bipolar. Um, really, when you get into this environment and when you're impoverished, you don't eat well, you don't sleep well, you don't exercise, and one thing leads to another. Like these guys both smoke and they, they both drink to some extent. So it was a really challenging. But again, it's something that I know as well because I worked for many years with the homeless through Via Hafta. It, it really was um, an auspicious moment to be with these guys. Uh, they're upbeat. <laughs> At least they were during the interview. They're smart. They've done a lot of reading, and I think one of the things to take out of this interview, and I often say that at the end of an interview is what can we take out of this, is the fact that let's not judge a book by its cover. Because someone's on the street or because someone's near the street, that doesn't mean they're stupid. It doesn't mean they're dumb. It doesn't mean that they don't have personality or character. My God, working out on the streets for many years, I discovered that there's likely more readers living on the street per capita than those who live in homes. Perhaps it's because of the available time. That being said, I've met a lot of extremely intelligent human beings who live on the street or near the street. And Vac and Danny are, are two of those guys. It, it was fun. It was insightful. Um, I just loved hearing Danny's story about how he drove a cab for a number of years in the 80s, he made sometimes more than 200 bucks a day. Life was good. He uh, had lived with two different women, one of whom was a journalist. Things were pretty normal until they weren't. And uh, one day he decided he was going to sell his cab license, you know, those plates. And he did so for $75,000. And for the next year, he set about blowing that seventy-five grand, renting a nice, you know, hotel room, buying booze, you know, buying it for other people. Now, here's the compelling piece. I asked him how did he feel about blowing that 75 grand. Didn't Danny answer it? He felt fine about it. He didn't really want the money anyway. And I asked him why that is. He said, I don't really know. So something for you to think about. In fact, he rose to the top. He was a journalist. He was a Formula One uh, broadcaster. And Formula One is one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, sports in the world. And he was hobnobbing with some of the greats. And he was very well known for his work because Vac is really, really bright. And he's articulate. And he's good at what he does. But as things often happen, he came from a very difficult background. Uh, being at Formula One wasn't right for him. Too much wealth, too much addiction, and he spiraled down. He has three girls. He was married, and unfortunately, 
that is not really in his life anymore. So Vac was very candid about where he's come from, very open, and he's a bright man. <laughs> he is a really bright man. So when he speaks, it's worthwhile listening to because he's very well thought out. He is also an outstanding cook. And he and, he and I have spent time together uh, making some pretty good meals. But m- mostly, you know, this is a story or an episode or a schmooze. First time I use that word in this show with two guys who many would look at and say, these guys are bums, but they're not. They're God's creations, if you will. They are human beings who have fallen on hard times, but have had to step up in a way that none of us, or most of us, I'm sorry, will never have to do because the times have been so rough and they've done it. We wish them well. We, we really, really wish them well. These, these two guys represent a lot of other people in our society. And quite frankly, they represented them really well. Episode 31 to 35 was with Miriam Borden, Dr. Saul Kendall, Devorah Mason, Christian Pritchard, and Robert Powell. Miriam Borden is a Yiddishist, third-generation survivor, and she's a baker. She is a very upbeat person. <laughs> I really like Miriam a lot. She's very effusive, and she's very um, exciting, really. She's Linda Carr's daughter, and she's a PhD in Yiddish, so she tells a lot of stuff about Yiddish, which you probably didn't know. She talks a lot about cooking and food, especially herring. <laughs> so if you're ever curious about herring, um, yeah, so have have a listen because you'll learn stuff which you, you probably didn't know. Um, Miriam, Miriam is also a very kind person, and that, um, that comes out in the interview, uh, very much so, I think. Dr. Saul Kendall, as I mentioned, is my dentist or was just retired. He's lost two boys and we talked about that. It didn't go exactly where I wanted to go, but he's of that generation and he was candid enough and he was open enough and one doesn't push their guests to go to a place where they don't want to go. Devorah Mason uh, is my niece. She lives in Jerusalem, uh, outside of it actually. And she is the single mother of five and she's bright. <laughs> she's bright. It's really nice to have nieces and nephews uh, who are older. She's, I think she's around 40 and have developed themselves in such a special way. And that's Devorah. So honestly, my synopsis of my interview with Devorah was I sat and I listened and I was really drawn into her mind. She has really thought about many things and she's gone through a lot too, as you can imagine being a single mom and all, living in Israel, having to support her kids, that's not easy stuff. Devorah Mason, the show is called A Beautiful Citizen of Our World. Christian Pritchard, a British-Canadian joyful chef and human being. So I was introduced to him through someone I had met at a bagel shop, and I hadn't known him previously. Most of my guests were either friends or colleagues uh, from years gone by. But Christian is effusive. He's over the top. He he really is. And he was nice to get to know during the show. And I told him that. I said, I think we'll be buddies afterwards. This is one thing you learn about this show is while you're doing the interview, you have this, I do anyways, I have this incredible bond with my guest. And I've always managed to get there 
It's it's as if it's as if we've known each other for years, and even if we have, it's as as if we've been friends on a daily basis, interacting constantly, even if that's not the case. But Christian was like that. I said to him, "I, I really want to be your friend now," you know. But that doesn't happen. It, it doesn't happen. I I heard Mark Marin talk about this on WTF his podcast. <laughs> yeah, you you really have the sense of holy crap, man. I got this community happening, and this guy's now part of it. But what what you do find out, and and again, I found this. Out through my schmooze with Christian is that you can be in touch with these people and you've learned about someone new in depth uh, and you never know where your paths might cross, how you could share with that person or how they can share with you. So Christian Pritchard was great and uh, I really love that interview. Uh, the person that I want to talk about is Robert Powell. Robert Powell is a ADHD coach. He's a lovely guy. He fell on really tough times. It really, you know, the old saying is, how do you come back from tough times? That's the measure of a person. But CRA went at him. He had this very successful jewelry company, and they decided they were going to take a bite out of him, and they did. And ultimately, this very successful jewelry company had to close down. And in, in the, the poor guy had gone through hell uh, with this because of an archaic law, which was eventually changed by another government. But the long and short of it is that Robert Powell turned everything around. And he remembers the day which uh, he found out that, you know, everything had come to an end uh, as far as his business went. He got into his car and he was driving like 150 kilometers an hour on the 407, which is up here in north, uh, northern Toronto. And, and then he thought about his two girls, twins. And he slowed down. He went home and he said to them, they were little girls at the time. This is your day. Where would you like to go? And they said the CN Tower, which is about 100 stories tall at the base of Toronto, was the tallest self-supporting structure in the world. And that's what he did. He took them to the CN Tower. So in the worst of times, he was able to remember the best things in his life. You know, there's stories that people tell and there's 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 tools that they discuss that they have in their lives. I know I have a lot of rules in my life which I use um, so that I'll know how to approach difficult things or some other some things otherwise. He has gratitude visits. He'll literally call up someone who did something good for him in life and he'll take them out for lunch and he'll express his gratitude to them. I love that. My mother was like that. She taught us how to do that. If I would buy her a bottle of herring, she would talk about it for a week and tell all her friends, oh, you know, my son bought me this beautiful bottle of Schmaltz herring. <laughs> um, Robert Powell also has a fuck you tool. And he's written down all the people who sort of fucked him in life. <laughs> And uh, he remembers those people. And somehow that brings them to the surface, to the fore, um, so that they're not sort of mucking about, you know, inside of his soul. And um, he says that because of all the stuff that he went through in life, essentially he is who he is today because of it. You know, one wonders, oh, my God, so much suffering, of which he did. But he said, no, I had to go through that to be where I'm at in 2019. And he's a successful ADHD coach, great guy who's helping me out actually right now. And I'm really, really grateful uh, for what for what he's doing. So Robert Powell, that's episode 35, Triumphing Over Adversity on Becoming an ADH Coach. Finally, episode 36 is with Michael Soberman 
Unbearing His Son's Foreskin. That's what it was called. Episode 37, Sharon Hart Green, The Soul of a Writer. Episode 38, Sean Kendall, Shauna Ackerman, Their Dream, A Camp for Teens and Young Adults with Autism. And Stephen Couch, A Radio Legend with Heart and Soul. Episode 40 with Joseph Pesuma. Michael Soberman was a good interview. He really was. He's a very, very smart guy. I love smart people who articulate, are articulate and are storytellers. And Michael Soberman is... And he told a lot of stories about his camp, Camp Kadima, of which he went for about 14, 15 years. And today he's the chairman of the board. I like names. I used to give nicknames to a lot of my friends. And Michael Soberman or Sobes did that with his friends. And uh, we talked about uh, some of the guys whom he knew from camp and, and that they're still attached today. And they're invited to all his celebrations. And he's invited to theirs. Um, he talked a lot about his work through March of the Living, which is a program to take uh, young people to Poland to visit Auschwitz and Treblinka and then to go to Israel. So from the ashes, you know, to the to the beauty, his insight into the Jewish world is well worth listening to. Um, and again, he's an excellent storyteller. He really is. A professional storyteller, I'd say. So have a listen. Sharon Hart Green is an author. She was a professor of Hebrew literature at U of T. This show is called The Soul of a Writer. It's a real pleasure to talk to a writer. I write and I have been for many years. And she tells us what it's like to develop characters and how they become part of you and how you kind of miss them when the book is finished to the extent that she's working on a second novel and one of the characters from her old book actually makes a cameo in the new book. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, Sharon's a lovely person. Um, she adores literature. She adores reading. These are very specific type of people, you know. There are those who say the world is divided into two, those who read and those who don't. I would say that's pretty accurate. She has a great vocabulary. Her vision of life and the way she expresses it is dotted with characters whom she might have read about in various different novels or even nonfiction. Have a listen to the show. It's a good one. Sean Kendall and Shauna Ackerman. Uh, we're going to talk about them in a second. Stephen Couch was my boss at CFRB and talk uh, at CFRB. And he is a special guy. He's from Montreal, comes from poverty, welfare. I think that's why Marty and, and him got along so well because they both come from similar backgrounds. But he never gave up. Like his mother was not supportive. His father was an alcoholic. And I guess in his DNA was a drive to do great in life. And he did. He rose to the top of his field. He's well-respected. He just came out with a book about uh, uh, six months ago about how to survive in the media and how to make a great career for yourself and he's thankful to a lot of people who were involved in his growth and he does so with an open heart he's um yeah he's, he's a special man and uh now he's enjoying life in a different way so you will hear about an evolution of a man going from poverty to great success he was uh he, he talks about a soldier sticking a rifle into his car when he was covering the flq crisis i believe it was in 1970 um and he had a lot of balls this man did <laughs> he really did so he, he's he's paid his dues no question about it and then finally joseph pasuma i've talked a bit about him joseph is roma 
and he came here from Hungary um, after persecution and found sanctuary in two different churches for 18 months in the Windermere Church through the grace and the generosity of Minister Alexa Gilmore and her congregation. Uh, yeah, this is a one-of-a-kind interview. Although it did not have a flow to it, I wouldn't say it was a difficult interview. I think much of it had to do with Joseph's trauma. Some questions he may not have understood because English is not his first language. And a pat on the back for doing this because I wouldn't have the balls to do an interview in Hungarian. Um, <laughs> but you know something? The essence of the interview was important. And you'll take out the message that he's trying to give, which is that of freedom in a very big way. Uh, Sean Kendall and Shauna Ackerman, episode 39. They're a lovely couple. They've been together for 39 years. No, that's wrong. <laughs> Shauna and Shauna have been together for three years, and they are a couple who communicate a lot, who work on their relationship a lot. Sean says that he's evolved tremendously since meeting Shauna, and she feels the same. So through this interview, you'll learn a lot about relationships and probably will be able to take something out of it for your own relationship. Uh, Sean has a daughter who's 21 and is uh, severely autistic. And Shauna has two children, both of whom are in their 20s, who are profoundly deaf. So they have a background, a similar background in, in terms of challenges of raising children with challenges. Um, Shauna tells a story about, you know, her daughter works in a store. Her, her son's a DJ. So you can imagine she's raised these kids well. Um, but her daughter works in a store and she says often people will come up to them and ask them something, and her daughter, if she's not looking, won't hear. And then they'll say to her, you know, you shouldn't be working in this job. Really? That's what you say? I, you know, I said in the interview, I can't believe that people will say such stupid things, you know? And Shauna's daughter says, listen, I have the right to work anywhere I want uh, and how I want, so accolades to her. But here is the big deal, that this past summer, they ran their own camp, Shauna and Shauna did, called the Karma Country Camp for teens, young adults, young people with autism. Yeah, yeah. Shauna had been working in IT. Uh, Sean, uh, I'm sorry, Sean, Sean was working in IT. Shauna is a therapist. And they decided, okay, let's, let's pursue uh, a dream together. And they did. They opened up a camp and they said it went swimmingly, absolutely swimmingly. Shauna said she never worked so hard in her life, but every moment was spectacular. Uh, listen to this show having to do with that camp because it's not like any other camp that I have ever heard of. Um, what I, one of the things I really like was their ability to spot something within one of the campers and to work with it. One of the campers would go, 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 go for two hours and then drop, right? He put out all that energy and then boom, bang, he was, he was done. So they worked with that timeline and they set up programs for him that lasted two hours and then they gave him a resting place. And that was very special because, firstly, it told me that they have the ability to see people thoroughly <laughs> from the inside out and to work with that. And secondly, it just speaks to their compassion and for their love. So 
have a listen to that episode and enjoy it. I know that I enjoyed doing it. That's it, folks. Uh, we really covered Hat Radio's first 40 shows. I really, I, I hope you enjoyed the show. I enjoyed doing it. It's always nice to take a step back and see what one has accomplished uh, and then sort of look through it and look around it, hold it in your hands, smush it up a little bit and allow it to unfold and recognize what has come over the last 11 months. So I'm feeling pretty proud right now. I do hope you enjoyed this show. I hope you took something out of it. And mostly I hope that it takes you to one of the interviews. Have a listen. Share the link with others. Continue, consider subscribing if that works for you. And ultimately take something out of it, which is important, be it our pursuit of freedom, as Joseph Pasuma spoke about, uh, or Sean and Shauna, uh, communication between couples, understanding of other people, regardless of where they come from. Dr. Saul Kendall, getting through the difficulties in life. Kitty Cohen, having that exuberance, you know, that, that look in your eye, embracing life every single moment. Karen Goldenberg, out there helping knowing that you're created for a specific task, and that is to extend yourself to others. Take something out of these shows, because within each and every one of them, there is a gem, I believe. And I'm honored to do these shows. I'm honored to share them with you, and I would ask if you could share them with others as well. Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to Hat Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. You like that? Yeah, I really do. <laughs> and God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the high